Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you so much again for joining us. Our guest today is no one less than Professor Ravindra Gupta. He is Professor of Clinical Microbiology and Wellcome Trust Senior Fellow in Clinical Science at the University of Cambridge. He is also faculty at the Africa Health Research Institute in Durban, South Africa, and he was formerly professor at the University College London between 2016 and 2019. Professor Gupta is an infectious diseases clinician with a specific focus on HIV. His training includes public health and molecular virology and the interplay between the restriction factor tetherine and the HIV gene VPU. Most of his work since has focused on antiretroviral therapy for treatment of HIV, and he has led a number of studies, both clinical and in vitro, aimed at addressing the global emerging threat of drug-resistant HIV. This work complements his research into drug resistance by expanding our knowledge of how viruses manipulate the host environment in order to persist. This will inevitably impact response to drugs and the search for a cure. His program of work is informed by clinical work as an infectious diseases physician in London, where he has been able to study unique individuals with HIV in order to better understand viral reservoirs and immune control of HIV. Ravindra Gupta is most probably best known for curing the so-called London patient after the Berlin patient, the second person in the world only to receive full HIV remission. Professor Ravindra Gupta, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. As a first question, I'd like to start with the HIV-positive person of the UK who was the second adult worldwide to be cleared of the HIV virus. He had a bone marrow transplant and from an HIV-resistant donor. Could you please walk us through what exactly this person was suffering from in order for him to receive a bone marrow transplant and what has ultimately led to his HIV remission? So this is an individual who underwent transplantation, actually had a blood cancer called lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma. And this is a a blood cancer that leads to the uh, cells in the bone marrow dividing uncontrollably. That leads to death 
unless treated. So this individual had, had standard chemotherapy, which are drugs, which are designed to stop the cells dividing. But this didn't work, unfortunately. And the only tr- option left for this individual was to have a bone marrow transplant using cells from an otherwise healthy individual that were then infused or injected into our patient in order to replace his blood cells in the bone marrow with new ones that were healthy, as it were. And following on from the Berlin patient, we were aware that there was an opportunity to cure HIV through this process, because if you find a donor who has a mutation or, a, or does not have a certain protein called CCR5, you can then replace the cells which are vulnerable to HIV with cells that are um, uh, protected against HIV. And that's what we did. So the donor was uh, somebody who had this mutation in both copies of their DNA and therefore had resistant cells. How difficult is it to find a person who has this CCR5 mutation? So it's, it is diffi- very difficult to find. So it's one in a hundred, but you then have to multiply that by the probability of finding somebody who has a tissue match to your individual. So you need to do um, a tissue match first to make sure that the cells will be compatible with your individual, your, your patient. And then you can search for the mutation that makes cells um, resistant to HIV. Now, you, I, I believe you talk about graft versus host disease. That's what you mentioned, right? How has this played out with the London patients? Yes, so graft versus host disease is something that happens to various different extents in different people. Some have a, a lot of it, some have less. And in some cancers, we think that this helps to actually clear the cancers um, because you're bringing cells from another person uh, that recognize the cells in the recipient or the person with the, in the cancer yeah. and start fighting and killing those cells. So to some extent, it's, it can be helpful. And also, in this case, we think it potentially is helpful against HIV-infected cells, that it helps kill HIV-infected cells. There isn't really a good test for how much graft-versus-host disease there is in a person. So we go on clinical signs that can range from skin rashes to changes in the liver that can also lead to changes in the gut. So you can get diarrhea, for example, uh, which is what our patient, our individual had. But the problem with saying this is graft-versus-host is difficult because many different things can cause these symptoms. So there isn't really a very good test to say this person has graft-versus-host, especially when it's mild. And our individual had only mild are you saying it, it happens always? To some extent, yeah. Yeah, you will always get a, a degree of graft versus because you're bringing foreign cells into a person and there will always be a certain degree of, of, of that activity. Now, one of the things that people think, especially people who are living with HIV, but also others, when they hear that you know, there was a second person cured, which has not yet been the case, that this is something that can be applied to people like myself who live with HIV. But that's not really the case, is it? That's the, uh, the, the, the one thing that we need to bear in mind is that this treatment that we have uh, used in this individual is a very special and unusual approach to curing HIV. It's, only, it's very dangerous, for example, and can only be used in people who would otherwise die of cancer because you are essentially destroying their immune system as part of the transplant process. And that makes them very vulnerable to infections and carries a 5 to 10% death, risk of death in itself. So it's basically they have to have cancer before you can apply this treatment? Is that, is that what you're saying? In this current form, yes. But the hope is that we can learn how to disrupt this gene or mutate this gene in people with the normal copies and then put those cells into HIV-infected individuals in the longer term. 
So that's the the hope to to use this okay. as a kind of proof of concept or a, to show that it can work, and then find a way of doing it safely in other people. So it's been eighteen months since this new patient has been under uh, HIV remission, showing no signs of uh, of the virus. When will you be able to say that this patient has actually been cured? So when we released the data, it was eighteen months. It's now twenty four months. Ah, oh, twenty four months. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So uh, we're now two years, and many people in the field would say this is now a cure. Maybe we'd like to wait another year to make it three years. But I think if there is signs no, are promising, yes, they are because we've done a lot of tests for looking for for, for the virus, and there's still nothing detected. How many of these people living with this type of cancer are being treated in this particular way? And how many have been have failed in the past? How many do you do you feel are have, have promising uh, prospects? There have been a, a number of attempts at this, probably up to five, and one of them failed because the patient actually had a type of HIV that uses an, uh, another protein okay. to infect cells called mm-hmm. CXCR4. So you have to screen people for the strain of HIV that is using CCR5 because otherwise knocking out the gene or knocking out the protein doesn't have any effect because the patient is infected with a different strain which can use another protein to enter the cells. So there was one case of uh, trying to repeat the case of the Berlin patient which failed because first of all the, the cancer came back, patient got sick but also the virus came back. Oh wow. So so there've been very very few others that have been documented. There is another current one. There are five more going through where I th- think that one patient has interrupted antiretroviral therapy and this is a patient in Dusseldorf in Germany and I think that's nearly that's between nine and 12 months of remission. So what do all these attempts teach you about the possibility of looking for new strategies to, uh, to do it actually find a cure? Because each case is different we learn what's required and what is not required or essential for mm-hmm. this to work so each case we get teaches us something a little bit different. You've spoken already about the Berlin patients. For our audience to understand, we're talking about Timothy Ray Brown. Uh, he was the first patient to be cured of, of, of HIV. Now, by achieving remission with the London patient, you've actually shown that it was related to the actual approaches, the treatment approaches, and it was not an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Right? But I'm going to quote you. You said that everybody believed after the Berlin patient that you needed to nearly die to cure HIV, but now maybe you don't, saying that Timothy Brown received a far more aggressive treatment than the London patient. Could you please elaborate a little bit on this uh, on this statement? Yeah. So the, the Berlin patient had a very aggressive course of chemotherapy. In fact, he had uh, what we call total body radiation, where you receive radiation to, to the body, which causes, it makes you feel very unwell, and it causes a lot of side effects. Not only did he have it once, but in fact, his cancer came back quite soon after the first transplant with radiation and chemotherapy. And he needed to have the whole thing all over again one year, around a year later. So he had two rounds of this very aggressive chemotherapy. And, and so we were not sure for a long time how, how much you had to do to actually achieve this. And with our individual, um, we were able to do it without any radiation and with a milder form of chemotherapeutic drugs and only once one round. So that's quite a big difference. I want to ask you a question that I've never really asked anybody. It's about, it's a personal question. I got diagnosed with HIV in South Africa and I was put on treatment immediately. I had what they call an acute seroconversion. So I had a very high vital load, no white blood cells left, was in in quarantine for almost 10 days. Mm. I was put on treatment, but then I came back to Belgium and they took me off treatment. And I was off treatment for four and a half years until my CD4s, the cells are being attacked by the virus, you know, became, I think I had 400 um, uh, left. 
and they put me back on treatment. Now, I've never really understood why they took me off treatment, but is it possibly because there is a small percentage of the people that are able to control, they call them the elite controllers to, to control the virus. Was that the reason or what is the specific reason behind the fact that in the past, because now they put everybody on treatment immediately? In the past, we used to wait until people's immune systems had become damaged to a certain extent uh-huh. before starting treatment. And, and that's because we knew that people who had a very low CD4 count had a high risk of death or getting serious mm-hmm. infections. But what we didn't appreciate back then is that uh, even when your CD4 count comes down, it does have an impact on your, on your health. That was not necessarily measurable in, in the studies that were conducted. So there is progressive d- damage to the immune system uh, despite not having any illness. Well, the START study, for example, demonstrated that starting earlier was better overall. It wasn't a huge amount better, but it did have statistically significant improvement in health. Of course, it also reduces transmission because you are, of course, yeah. uh, you limit the probability of transmission by suppressing the viral load quickly. So there was also a public health angle to all of this. And also we need to remember that in 10 years ago, for example, drugs were more, that you needed to take more pills more times a day. And the side effects were potentially more considerable than they are now. And so a, a number of, you had to then balance toxicity of the regimen with starting early enough. And what do you do with, the, with those people that are able, the elite controllers, they call them, now they've, they've ruled out because everybody's put on treatment immediately, right? So with, there are different forms of control. So we know that some people can control HIV naturally. And the mechanism of that is a little bit debated. It's to do with your immune system and essentially either T cells or uh, potentially also other types of white blood cells. But we know that many of these individuals still have a bit of replication going on, a bit of HIV ticking over because there's a constant battle going on. Some studies suggest that there is a bit more inflammation going on as a result of this. And that's why many elite controllers are now treated. There are numbers certainly in London and throughout the world who do not want to be treated because, of course, they also balance the, the side effects of drugs against whatever low level of activation is going on. But the so, side effects are lower than they used to be as well. They are low, but people get them still. So, you know, uh, and some people's lifestyle is such that they don't want to be tied to taking daily pills and they make the, the decision, the informed decision to delay treatment. And these individuals often have CD4 counts that are above 500. By traditional markers, they wouldn't be treated anyway. I'm quite an advocate for people making a decision as to when they want to be treated because once you start treatment, you really have to keep going. Yeah, um, and it's for life, you know, you can't, you don't want to be changing your mind. So I, I, in my practice, I would support people who wanted to uh, wait as long as they maintain follow-up within the system. Yeah, well, what's interesting about what you say is that uh, there is an impact of waiting with treatment on the immune system. But the London patient, he was diagnosed in 2003 and waited until 2012, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. to start treatment. But this yet has not had an effect on the success of, you know, your, the, the way you treated him. Yes, that's right. I mean, but actually that's a lesson for why treatment early is better because the Hodgkin lymphoma is pretty much related to the immune suppression in that individual. So having HIV for 10 years untreated damages the immune system. Remember, the immune system stops cancers developing or limits them. So Hodgkin lymphoma is, and lymphoma is a complication of weakened immune systems. So actually we could say the opposite, that actually that the cancers may not have arisen if he'd been treated earlier. Difficult to say for sure. Yeah. You've mentioned gene therapy as a, as a possible alternative for uh, finding a cure for HIV. What's your exact standpoint on this? 
I think it's an amb- ambitious goal, but then we've set ourselves ambitious goals in science throughout history. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it's impossible. I think that there are huge uh, technical and clinical ethical issues to, to, to get over. But I think it's, a, it's a, certainly a, a journey worth making, partly because we now have at least two cases of where, where disruption of this gene does lead to, to remission in the long term. So it's a viable strategy, and I think it's worth pursuing. But there was a case in China of a researcher who uh, he was using gene editing on human embryos to create uh, babies who would uh, be resistant to catching the HIV virus. Quite controversial, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, that was very controversial. He was widely criticized as well. That's right. I mean, I, I, to some extent, I think protection from HIV is potentially an excuse for doing this. And he probably wanted to do it for other reasons because nobody had done it before. And CCR5 was a good candidate because we had information to think or believe that um, it's had no long-term harmful consequences given that uh, 1% of Europe, Northern Europeans have this mutation okay. and have fairly normal life expectancy, although there are a couple of reports that may be questioning whether there are small differences in life expectancy given you know, with those, with, in those individuals. Um, so, uh, yes, this individual did do the, do the gene editing in, in embryos. Yeah. Now, two weeks ago in Belgium, Professor van der Gerkhoven, he had a scoop with a paper that was published mm-hmm. about finding the reservoir where the virus is hiding. What's interesting is when also when you cured between brackets the London patient is that media jumps on that saying mm-hmm. that, yeah, we're very close to uh, ending mm-hmm. the epidemic. You know, we're going to cure AIDS uh, and mm-hmm. HIV. Even President Trump tweeted, mm-hmm. HIV is cured in second patients, doctors mm-hmm. report. What can we Tell people living with HIV and also people not living with HIV about the prospects of a cure. Because 30 years ago, people were already saying that you're close to a cure, mm. but it's kind of a longer road to, uh, to success, isn't it? That's right. I think we know m- more about what's needed now and we're more realistic about how long it's going to take. Um, and how long is it going to take, in your opinion? You uh, think? Well, I, I think it would, be, it would probably be 10 years before we actually get something that's clinically ready. And even that would be in small numbers of patients selected to start with. So I think we're, you know, we're, we're still a decade away, probably. For a cure and for, I mean, for a vaccine? For a cure that we can, we can use in more than one individual at a time. Okay, yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, HIV drug resistance, which is, has been the focus of your research career. Now, could you please explain to our audience what uh, drug resistance actually means and what the contributing factors are to, uh, that lead to such resistance? So HIV is a, a virus and it infects cells. Its survival strategy, the reason it's so successful is that this is a virus that is very poor at making copies of its own genetic material. And it, so it makes a lot of mistakes when, when it copies itself. And of course, we as humans, we need to have very good copying mechanisms. Otherwise, we get sick and we, uh, we don't live very long or we have severe disability. So, but for viruses, this strategy is beneficial because it's a simple organism or and does not have many genes to enable it to to fight or to establish identity and proliferate and so what it does is it uses mutation as a way of generating a lot of diversity within its genetic uh, makeup in order to avoid the immune system for example and to make copies of itself that can't be targeted by um, our own host defenses so this is a survival strategy the virus has and of course when we try and use drugs to control this virus it uses the same strategy to avoid the drugs. So um, because it's making different genetic variants of itself or different uh, forms of itself all the time, some of those forms are resistant to the drugs that we're using because the mutations are in the places where the drugs are working. And so 
That's why HIV develops drug resistance more quickly than very many other viruses and bacteria. This is why it's so important that we as HIV positive people, uh, you know, are very compliant with, with taking our medicine on a daily basis, isn't it? That's right. That's why taking all the doses is really important. And also we use multiple medications at the same time. So we don't, we never really treat with one drug alone because this is a virus which has uh, many copies of itself being made all the time in the body. And so the, the more drugs we use, the, the less the chance of any resistance emerging. I was in South Africa not so long ago, and we went into the, into the townships, and I spoke to a local nurse, and one of the things she told me is that a lot of the people are being treated with uh, antiretroviral medicine. They take the medicine, and then they feel better, and they stop. Mm. It's one of the big challenges they face. Now, how much of a real risk is this for global drug resistance, as, as, as you call it? I think this is probably one of the, the biggest factors contributing to resistance in people who are about to start treatment, because many of these people starting treatment have actually been treated before, as you say. So what you end up with is people who have drug resistance because they stop their therapy early. What happens when you stop the, med the traditional medications that we use for first line is that you end up with drug resistance emerging because one of the drugs hangs around in the body for a long time. Yeah. Two of them disappear very quickly. So you end up with a period of maybe one or two weeks where there's just one drug hanging around at quite low levels. And that is a very good pressure for the virus to develop high-level drug resistance to that particular drug. We are seeing a lot of individuals coming to be treated, and when you do sequencing of the virus or assess the drug resistance, they have drug resistance. And these are usually people who have been treated before. There's also the problem of transmitting drug resistance. So if you've been treated and you're not taking a medication or you have virus in the blood that's detectable for whatever reason, you can then pass on the resistance to another person. So wow. there are two things going on that's contributing to um, to drug resistance worldwide. So technically, every person with, living with HIV who's not taking his medicine on a daily basis puts himself and other people at risk. To some extent, yes. That's interesting. So it's, it's all, 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 the, all the more uh, an incentive for us to keep uh, using our, our medicine, yes. right? Now, I, I just want to touch upon HIV and stigma. The London patient chose to be anonymous for reasons perfectly understandable. Now, Timothy Brown, the Berlin patient, has said in an article that I recently read that um, he would advise a London patient to speak up, even if it was only to open the debate about HIV within wider society. What is your take on this? Would you agree with Timothy Brown? And would you also advise a London patient to, to speak up? Or? I think it's a personal choice um, for each individual. Yeah. And one of the issues about the London patient staying anonymous is, was partly because it was a little bit early, so 18 months when we reported this. And so nobody was sure as to whether this would last. And I think that being cautious was a better option because, of course, once you become public and things don't go the right way, um, okay, then, then life can become difficult. I think that's why there's been some caution. Of course, there's also been the preparation psychological sort of processes about potentially being cured that take time. And I, so I think that the approach has been the right one so far. Yeah. I think, you know, the individual certainly does want to contribute to helping fight stigma And so we're hoping that there will be a period when, or a time when, when he can start speaking. And uh, we're talking about the wider um, topic of stigma in general, as a, as a person who's holding the pulse on the finger uh, very much every day. Why do you believe that HIV, whilst it has become a chronic disease, is still a topic of shame, of guilt, and ultimately silence? People just don't talk about it. Why is that, do you believe? It's a very important question because it seems to be on its own to some degree as to this 
special thing. It, it may be the, the fact that it's related to, you know, the transmission is mainly sexual. I mm-hmm. think that there's obviously sex is taboo in many societies and uh, is not discussed. And therefore, there is a, a label attached to acquiring HIV. And I think that's probably certainly in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia part of the problem. Uh, of course, because it may demonstrate what, what people are actually doing, how active they are and, and, and who their partners may be. So I think that's partly driving it. I think that, of course, the history of it being untreatable and leading to quite... And the collective quite, memory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a, there's a collective fear of it. And so that hasn't disappeared. To, in some ways, that's a good thing because the fear is something that drives people. Innovation to, probably as yeah, well. Yeah, drives innovation, but also people to take their medication. Because uh-huh. if they're not scared of a disease, they may not want to take medication. We certainly see that. As people get healthier, when they start antiretrovirals, they potentially don't realize how important it is to take it. And they potentially people see less, fewer and fewer other people being sick or dying of HIV. And so that is reducing the collective memory of how bad this disease can be. Well, let's hope that we, with our campaign, uh, can, can at least be a, a drip on a hot plate yes. to fight because it's very difficult to, uh, to overcome it. Now, last question. The, the Gupta's research program uh, focuses on HIV from basic science of how the virus interacts with human cells and the immune system through the global studies of the emerging problem of drug-resistant HIV. Now, given that you've been very successful with curing again between brackets the London patient, what does the the future hold for you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It has been tempting to think that this would be uh, the start of a sort of career in gene therapy. But, I mean, you know, that field is already advancing and there are great experts in that area. So my view, um, my, my aim is to, is to kind of continue the sort of fundamental research on HIV resistance, pathogenesis, and how this virus is, is operating within cells, um, because I think this will teach us many lessons about not just HIV, but other viruses and other disease processes. So I think that's where we're going with our work. Of course, uh, remission is of interest. Uh, understanding how HIV works within cells is, is a key step in understanding how we're going to clear this virus in using different methods, gene therapy is just only is only one method being tested, and so the the successful one at the end may be something completely different. And so we need to keep all types of research going to achieve that. Is there one last message you would have for people living with HIV? Well, I think we've come a long way. I think we can see that treatment is, has been revolutionised. You know, a huge amount of effort and both scientific and political has gone into achieving antiretroviral therapy success that we have. We have the, some of the tools to control the epidemic and to make people, give people healthy lives. And so the, the future is still bright. We, we still can have hope. But I think we should always remember that we've come a, a long way. Absolutely. And never forget those who passed away and That's let's right. focus on, on, on the yeah. future. Yeah. Professor Gupta, thank you, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So yes, a big, big thank you to Professor Ravindra Gupta for coming on this podcast and for sharing with us his research, his discoveries on how the HIV virus interacts with human cells and the immune system, the relation between this and HIV medication resistance, and how far we are in search for cure for HIV. Specifically, his insights on the challenges he faced when curing the London patient and the lessons he learned from that experience were eye-opening. Personally, I must say that this has truly been an amazing discussion about HIV and AIDS with one of the most prominent individuals on the topic in the world today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much, Professor Ravindra Gupta. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group. 
specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.